0: My guest today is uh, Dr. Antonis Hajikiriakou, uh, Assistant Professor of Ottoman and Turkish History at Pantheon University in Athens, uh, who is also affiliated scholar at the Center for Spatial and Textual Analysis at Stanford University. Antonis earned his PhD in History at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London in April 2011, and has held teaching positions and research positions at Princeton, Stanford, Huazici University in Istanbul, uh, the University of Crete, and the University of Cyprus, and he will be publishing this month his latest monograph, Peninsular Island, Cyprus in the Mediterranean in the Ottoman Age of Revolutions. Uh, so, Andonis, welcome to the History of Cyprus podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for the invitation.
0: I almost always like starting off my um, my interviews with one question that Affects historians quite a bit is um, is is the sources that you deal with, and um, as a social historian, I know at least for the Ottoman period, it's 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 richer in resources. With that being said, what are some of the texts that you come to rely on?
1: Indeed, uh, the question of sources is very very important, uh, and in the Ottoman case, uh, Ottomanist historians are blessed. Uh, Well, it's both a blessing and a curse, I suppose. The fact that uh, we have such a vast amount of sources available. Uh, We have millions of uh, documents kept in the Ottoman Imperial Archives in Istanbul, which cover, of course, a huge uh, amount of uh, geographical scope. And we have Uh, with reference to Cyprus in particular, we have quite a lot of documents. Now, I say that this is a blessing and a curse because there is a huge variety in the typology of sources. So very different kinds that require specialized skills in terms of paleography. Uh, And then um, we also have... Uh, it's a very rare occurrence that one historian or two historians rather would look at the same source. I remember as an undergraduate doing a course on Nazi history, for example, one of the first things that we learned back then was that pretty much every historian of Nazi Germany has looked at the same sources. So that allowed for different interpretations of the same primary material, different readings of the same primary sources, which is something that will uh, enrich different points of view. In the case of Cyprus or the Ottoman Empire in particular, it's very rare that this, the exact same source will be read multiple times and interpreted in different ways. And this is why I say this is a blessing and a curse.
0: I, um, I was hoping we could also start off by talking about the political climate in this period, just to give some context to, to listeners about what Cyprus was like. Um, and, and in the late 16th century, you know, a decision is made to invade Cyprus, which may not have been uh, an easy one as it necessitated breaking a peace treaty with Venice. And uh, as far as we know, Cyprus didn't really even have that much to offer. But how was this reasoned uh, in the period, in the time? Like, What were the roots of this conflict that would uh, lead Venice and, and the Ottomans to... To war, how does the historiography of this conquest? How is it treated by scholarship? Now that we're, you know, talking about interpreting sources, and um, in that similar vein,
1: um, if we're going to start talking about the Ottoman period of Cyprus, uh, we're talking about a uh, a long period of time, uh, more than three hundred years. So that we would, so we would need to separate this into different periods. We need some kind of a periodization. And a good starting point for this is indeed uh, the inauguration of Ottoman rule. So why why and how did the Ottomans decide to invade Cyprus? The Ottoman 16th century was the beginning of a long period of transition for the Ottoman Empire. The, The empire itself was undergoing important transformations First and foremost, as a result of the huge expansion in the early 16th century by Selim the I, which meant that the Arab lands, and including Egypt, were incorporated into the empire. That had transformed the population and human geography of the empire meaning that the vast majority of the population now reflected the official religion of the empire. This was not the case, particularly in the Balkan lands where uh, Christians or non-Muslims were the majority. So this was the beginning of, of a period of Islamization in the Ottoman world. Now, this is taking place a few decades before the uh, Ottoman invasion of Cyprus. So why did the Ottomans decide to do that? This process of consolidation of imperial lands meant that Cyprus was a thorn on on the side of the Ottomans. The areas of Anatolia, the central lands of the empire, Uh, the greater Syria and Egypt are surrounding geographically Cyprus. By that stage, the eastern Mediterranean was still uh, an an area of uh, contest between uh, Christian powers and the Ottomans. And this meant that various... Pirate or corsair attacks uh, by uh, Christians were using Cyprus as a base for their operations. However, when uh, the Ottomans conquered Egypt, they also inherited the right to collect a tribute that the Venetians were forced to to pay to the Mamluk Empire in Egypt. So Cyprus, in terms of international law at the time, was not an entirely sovereign state in the sense that a tribute had to be paid. When the Ottomans inherited this tribute from the Mamluks, They essentially treated Cyprus as a quasi-imperial realm. They had had a geographical vision whereby while Cyprus was not part of the empire, it had some kind of loose links to it. And we have some interesting correspondence by uh, Suleiman the Magnificent sending certain documents, uh, sending, sending um, a letter, essentially, to the Venetian um, officials in Cyprus, demanding in, in very strong language, as if he were addressing his own functionaries, demanding the dispatch of certain uh, hunting falcons. Uh, and this was a symbolic exercise. Essentially, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, when he's sending these letters to the Venetian officials of Cyprus, he's symbolically emphasizing his authority over Cyprus, even though it was not officially part of the Ottoman Empire. So here we see the first instances whereby the Ottoman Empire is turning its eyes towards Cyprus. In 1570, when the decision to invade uh, Cyprus is taken, and this was by all means not a foregone conclusion, there was a different faction within Ottoman um, circles of power, which was very hesitant to get involved in a war with Venice. We have different power struggles within the Ottoman circles of power. When the decision is taken, it is taken on account of uh, Corsair attacks, which were using Cyprus as, uh, as a base. And it is interesting to see how this was legitimized by the sheikhul islam of the Ottoman Empire, that is the chief jurisprudent at the time was Ebu Sud Efendi, a very famous jurisprudent and one of the most important ones, one of the most important legal thinkers, uh, what we would call today the Attorney General of the Ottoman Empire. And the legal justification for the invasion is quite interesting because it allows a lot of room for maneuver in interpreting Islamic law. I'm not going to go into details uh, so that you know I won't tire your your audience with um, minute uh, legalistic issues. But the fact of the matter was that this decision this legal decision could have easily been uh, could have easily taken the opposite direction so we do see a determination on behalf of the ottomans to include uh, by violence if need be cyprus into the ottoman realms and the reason why they wanted to do that was to consolidate their power in the Eastern Mediterranean. And the Ottoman invasion of Cyprus meant precisely that, uh, that the Eastern Mediterranean was going to become an Ottoman lake. And this is something that we see developing later on, um, almost uh, a century later, with the conquest of Crete when the conquest of Crete took place, and this is another landmark point in in the periodization of the Ottoman history of Cyprus, meant that the uh, border, the westward border of the empire had shifted greatly, thereby reducing the geostrategic importance of Cyprus. So what we have is an island that had a lot of geostrategic value in 1570 when it was in the hands of a rival power. But when it was incorporated into the Ottoman realms, the situation had changed. The significance of Cyprus, the geostrategic significance of Cyprus was gradually being reduced. This is because the Ottomans quickly found out that Cyprus had nothing exceptional to offer to the island. If you look at the um, resources of the island, for example, the main uh, economic products that were being traded in the ports of the island, which were uh, grain, cotton, silk, all these Products were being produced in abundance and sometimes in better quality by the, the continental land masses surrounding Cyprus, that is Anatolia, Greater Syria, and Egypt. So Cyprus, a few centuries, uh, sorry, a few decades after its conquest was not as valuable for the empire. As it was originally hoped, and this is interesting and important, because the British found themselves in exactly the same position and reached the same conclusion after they had taken control of Cyprus. They had they they had the same high hopes, which very quickly um, withered away.
0: After after the conquest, um, what did the Ottomans prioritize? I mean, did they did they realize almost immediately, as you suggest, as you said, that the economic viability of the island is is an issue? Uh, did they prioritize its security? Um, I, I do know that in the again in the few years slash decades after the conquest, um, there was a a switch uh, to cotton and silk production in particular. And then the the traditional production of sugar and salt uh, was altogether abandoned. Now, was this because of dwindling dwindling labor or was there some other reason why these economic um,
1: uh, adjustments were made? Indeed, this is is a very important question. Uh, What are the changes in the economic and social structure um, of Cyprus after the Ottoman conquest? Older, earlier historiographies uh, and older approaches which um, have been found to not necessarily reflect the historical record used to claim that the decline in the importance of Cyprus was due to the inability of the Ottomans to efficiently and effectively deal with the economy, that the Ottoman economic mind was not was somehow not developed enough to maximize the potential of the new province however the uh, changes uh, and as we can see the as we will see the decline in population and overall living standards was actually the result and any changes that took place were actually the result of much more broader global even processes that did not just concern Cyprus or Ottoman policies in Cyprus. Which were those? Let's take sugar, for example. Sugar was a, a highly valuable commodity that Cyprus was very famous for in medieval times. Cyprus was the biggest supplier of sugar to European Markets, And this is a time when sugar was an extremely valuable luxury good. It was far from the everyday commodity that we know and enjoy at present. This is a time that was even used as a ceremonial item. That is, it wasn't necessarily consumed because it was so highly valuable. And Cyprus was the biggest supplier for that. Uh, And it was indeed the site of, Cyprus was the site of important innovations in the production and processing of sugar. However, sugar started a westward path or a westward trajectory of moving elsewhere and being produced with different modes of organization of labor and investment. Sugar was, uh, some, was required a plantation economy and required slave labor uh, for its production. In when in the Mediterranean, uh, slave labor was increasingly difficult to acquire. And because social conditions were improving, it was more and more difficult to have this this, um, way of organizing labor. And the production of sugar was becoming much more expensive. So by the Uh, by the 1490s even Madeira emerges as the biggest supplier of sugar in Europe. It replaces Cyprus at the top of the list. Again, it's being produced with slave labor but Madeira is is further west Uh, and it's also in the Atlantic Ocean. So and it has an abundance of good, which is also necessary for the production of sugar. Within a few decades, the sugar, product, the sugar economy of Madeira collapsed for the very simple reason why all timber resources had been completely depleted as a result of this highly intensive mode of production. Production, And from then on, sugar production is moving towards the Caribbean and the Americas, again with the use of slave labor. This mm-hmm. meant that bigger uh, amounts of sugar were flooding into the Euro- European markets, thereby reducing the price of sugar and gradually making it not sustainable and not profitable for it to be cultivated somewhere like Cyprus. Right. So, by the early seventeenth century, sugar production is being abandoned in Cyprus. Uh, as I said, earlier approaches used to emphasize uh, the fact that the Ottomans lacked the sophistication to uh, to um, achieve the production of um, sugar and and develop the production of sugar. But we have broader global processes at stake which account for this shift in the economy. Uh, Another important global process that affects the economy of Cyprus is the change in the spice routes, which by that time, until the um, 16th, century were were essentially land routes reaching Damascus and from there uh, to Cyprus and from Cyprus to the rest of Europe. Uh, But by that time, the Portuguese had circumvented Africa, establishing a new route for the transport of spices, thereby essentially rendering redundant a centuries-old trade route which passed from Cyprus. All these issues had a negative effect on the local economy. This meant that various shifts had to take place. Uh, sugar was uh, abandoned. And by the way, this the, the gradual abandonment of sugar did not start during the ottoman period it had already started and it was it was a process already being taking place since the venetian times um, and sugar was gradually being substituted by cotton uh, another uh, cash crop that required that was labor intensive that was um uh, required a lot of water. It was a hyper. Well, yeah, which,
0: which I found really interesting to read because Cyprus, as I'm sure most listeners know, is sort of a semi-arid island, and the, the switch to cotton and silk. I mean, those are those are water intensives. How, how would this have even worked uh, in Cyprus in this period?
1: Well, this was the big research question that troubled me for a long time when I was doing my doctoral research. How was it possible for such water-intensive crops to not only just be cultivated, but to be at the forefront of economic production and to be produced at such a scale so that they can be part of international trade? And this is what led me to look into environmental and climate history in order to answer this conundrum. And the answer, of course, is uh, manifold. It's, it doesn't account, one one factor does not account to it. Uh, but the first thing we need to take into consideration is that In the particular case that we are discussing, particularly relevant is a um, period known uh, in climate history as the Little Ice Age. Uh, This is a period historians debate about the uh, chronological boundaries. Um, Some talk about the uh, 14th century, some mention even earlier, others talk about the 16th century. Uh, But the point here is that from the uh, medieval or late medieval times uh, until the 19th century, the global climate had changed and experienced particularly so in the Um, 16th and 17th century, some radical and violent uh, entered a a period of radical and violent change that included extreme weather phenomena. Again, there are big discussions as to what causes this little ice age, but I won't go into them. And it has different manifestations in different parts of the globe. In the case of the Mediterranean, what we know about the Little Ice Age is we have more, much more snow, much more precipitation, and importantly, periodic periods of droughts, <clears throat> which interrupt the higher precip- precipitation, which is the norm during that time. What does that mean? This means that any instances of drought that we find in the historical record are being described in very dramatic terms. And this has led a lot of historians who have taken these descriptions at face value to reach the conclusion that the climate and the landscape of Cyprus were pretty much the same as what we know today. If, however, we identify these uh, instances of extreme weather phenomena, including droughts, we will find that they are much, much less frequent than they are today. So we have all these instances of extreme weather phenomena and other Um, elements testifying to the presence of uh, to the manifestation of the Little Ice Age in Cyprus, which can partly explain how these water-intensive cultivations were sustainable on the island. The second thing we need to take into consideration is that, and it's connected to the first one, what we see today as this Uh, semi-arid, arid arid even uh, environment, this yellow landscape that one would encounter in present-day Cyprus is the result of highly uh, intensive processes, primarily of the 20th century. First of all, right now we have about 10 times the population that we had Uh, in the early modern period that we are examining. So this means that there is much more demand for water. And this this tenfold increase in population also meant that their um, subsistence needs are uh, increased. And therefore, agriculture is much more intensive than what it used to be, thereby um, demanding much more water. On top of that, right now we have a tourism-based economy Uh, and every year uh, there is a high number of tourists that is uh, manifold the population of the island, again, demanding much, much more water. But all these issues have to do with external factors, with the environment and the climate of the time. What about human agency? Where do we situate human agency in these large-scale environmental and climatic processes? And here comes the third factor, which is the employment of centuries-old ancient methods of knowledge for water management um, and managing water resources with available means. One of them, for example, which is uh, interestingly documented in historical maps or other sources, is the use of chains of wells, uh, what is known in the Middle East as canats. And this is something that comes from the ancient period, uh, ancient world, Uh, and was a way to use and employ underground water resources, in which Cyprus used to be particularly rich because of its geological history. This is why, if you talk to anyone in Cyprus uh, who lived uh, through the second half of the 20th century, they will tell you about how wells were being dug and how important wells were, especially in the context of a single household. The new technological means of the 10th to 20th century allowed Cyprus to exploit even further underground water resources that were hitherto underutilized, let's say, uh, but This meant that all these resources were being made available for the purposes of cultivating cotton or sugar or uh, suriculture, that is mulberry trees, uh, which are used for um, silk production. Uh, The same goes for wheat as well, also highly demanding in waters. Uh, Grain was the other big uh, product leaving Cyprus from its uh, from port. And again, here we have another kind of shift which matches a broader Mediterranean-wide trend. Up until the 17th century, Mediterranean grain was highly important uh, for European markets, especially in Italy. Venice was uh, uh, had a, a particular problem uh, faced important challenges in securing the uh, uh, carbohydrates through the cereals for its population. Cyprus was the Cyprus was the breadbasket of Venice up until the sixteenth and even seventeenth uh, century. But by that time, again, global trade had changed. We have uh, the Baltic. Uh, grain coming into Europe, which had shifted the balance and later on, much later on, we have the Black Sea uh, grain trade that changes things, which overall means that the production of cereals in Cyprus gradually is being decreased. And this is something that we can vividly see when we analyze the uh, different kinds of surveys that the Ottomans conducted. So through uh, these particular commodities and the history of those commodities in Cyprus, we can see the matching of broader, bigger trends in Mediterranean history exactly reflected in Cyprus.
0: The, in, in 1572, uh, a firman is issued, which is If listeners are not familiar with that term, I I suppose the equivalent word would be an edict. And it's issued in 1572 to settle Cyprus. Uh, What was the settlement and the aim of that motive? Was it for reactivation of the economy and and all these grandiose objectives that the the Ottoman Empire has with Cyprus? Um, Or was there another reason in uh, the settlement of Cyprus in this period?
1: Now we're moving on into issues of population, which uh, again are very, very important in any understanding of the social history of the island. Cyprus came out of a bloody and traumatic two-war period of warfare. The population of the island had dramatically declined as a result of both the, the battles on the island, but also because most of the Venetian aristocracy had either perished in battle uh, or were being held uh, hostage uh, and left the island. So we have a dramatic decline in population as a result of the war. That said, a closer examination of available sources shows that this was much more the case in, eastern, in the eastern half of Cyprus, in, in between Nicosia and Famagusta, where the vast majority of battles took place. Western Cyprus was much, much less affected by warfare, and we can see this very, very clearly. And what we also can observe through um, mapping the population, the concentration of population in Cyprus at the time is that we have a high concentration of people living in the mountains, living in the in the Troodos Mountains, which is certainly something worth noticing and analyzing. The Ottoman state had a range of methods, policies, ways of dealing with the incorporation of a province. It is known in the historiography as the Ottoman methods of um, conquest. One of them was to repopulate and re-energize the economy. And in order to do that, uh, among other things... Uh conversion, of course, is another one. And I have to emphasize that conversion in this instance was not forced, but it was voluntary. And to tackle another important stereotype in uh, Ottoman history, as well as the history of Cyprus, is that before the 19th century, you had very few instances of if not none, in the case of Cyprus, of mass, large-scale, and forced conversion. Let us not forget that the Quran itself forbids forced conversion. There is uh, a famous passage in the Quran which says there is no compulsion in religion. So converting to Islam has to be the result of one's free Wheel. So some people converted to Islam uh, after the war. Other people were being resettled from uh, Anatolia in order to re-energize the economy. And we have these edicts which specify how many people uh, should live from which settlement, what kind of Professions need to be included uh, for the people that will um, go to Cyprus. And again, this shows that uh, the uh, motive of um, re-energizing the economy was a high priority. What we don't know is how successful was this process of resettlement was. We have some indications from subsequent the orders or edicts that uh, either people did not go to Cyprus or they went to Cyprus and then left. So we can never be entirely sure how many, what the extent of resettlement was.
0: The one thing that I found interesting in in this resettlement, Period is that this edict wasn't even necessarily uh, a voluntary one. In fact, I think the decree mentions that those transferred to the island were known for their bad character and unlawful activities. I mean, not all of them, but some of them. So it reminds me a little bit about of uh, Australia's um, initial <laughs> settlement. Is, is this? I mean, is this uh, a valid sort of um, take on this period where people were forced? And it wasn't even necessarily uh, a Muslim population as well. I think I came across uh, reading that there were reports of even Greek refugees returning to Cyprus and Christians as well settling the island. So was this a, a heterogeneous population of uh, repopulation of Cyprus?
1: Indeed, it was. It was uh, quite heterogeneous. The, the vast majority was Muslim. Um, we can take that for granted. Uh, of course, we have had some attempts of uh, to interpreting this policy and some people have gone as far as to argue that even Muslims that were resettled to Cyprus from Anatolia were actually former Christians, thereby Greek in blood, leading to the rather... Uh, the conclusion on rather shaky grounds that Turkish Cypriots even those who came from Anatolia were actually Greek and as you can imagine this is a problematic conclusion um, on historical grounds uh, nevertheless what you mentioned about the character of of the settlers uh, and with the uh, with a very good example of, of Australia, again it points to the challenges of imperial rule and resettlement when when you have an empire and you are administering large amounts of uh, lands and you have particular problems in particular areas settlement is one way of dealing with these problems so the fact that we have people of not necessarily reputable character being resettled to Cyprus doesn't have something to do with Cyprus itself, but with imperial governance at large. And Cyprus is not the only place where uh, these kinds of populations are being sent.
0: The, um, you know, the, the recent scholarship, as you mentioned, uh, has refuted this concept of Islamization uh, of the island. You know, you mentioned that if anyone was to convert, it was going to be voluntary. But, but I did come across a similar term. And um, I wanted you to just clarify what this is and what it means in the context of Cyprus, which is the term of Ottomanization of, of Cyprus. So what exactly is, is that? Uh, and how is that different than the now refuted islamization of, of Cyprus, what, what, what would this mean for Cyprus in this time and what would it mean for Cyprus as a whole?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, um, there was never any policy of islamization for Cyprus on behalf of the Ottoman Empire. This is the first thing we need to uh, take into, into consideration. As I said, there was never any policy of forced or mass scale conversion and this was for a very simple reason. Had the Ottomans done that, they would have lost a huge amount of revenue that non Muslim populations would pay uh, in the form of the jizya tax, what is uh, known in um, English uh, language uh, sources as the head tax or the poll tax. So it was not to their economic interest to Islamize the island. The second thing we need to uh, remember uh, when addressing the question, your, your, your question, is that the Ottomans had a rather flexible and adaptable mechanism of integrating new provinces into their empire. So, wherever the Ottomans went, whenever they uh, integrated a new province into their empire, they never enforced a fixed and stable system that had overturned existing social, economic, and cultural realities. Rather, they, in a way, respected and they were very careful not to upset existing balances. And what this policy aimed at was the gradual incorporation and Ottomanization of that province without disrupt to minimize disruption. So for example, Venetian feudal elites, which, held quite a bit of land in Cyprus. They were neither forcefully converted, uh, but they were rather integrated into the uh, local administration. They were given Timars, their their feudal lands were turned into Timars, um, that is a given amount of land that is uh, given to someone in exchange for their military services. So non-Muslims were part of the military establishment and the purpose of these privileges, let's say, uh, or the non-intervention policy was to facilitate the gradual incorporation of of these populations and even their gradual conversion to Islam. After a generation or two, these former Christian or non-Muslim elite families would see that their interest lay in converting to Islam and be fully integrated into the Ottoman elite. And this is precisely what happened in the case of Cyprus, as uh, it happened elsewhere in the Balkans, for example.
0: I, uh, I think a lot of listeners have probably come across the concept of "linobambaki," which basically the, the loose translation is linen and cotton, which implies a sort of dual identity, a code switching of Cypriots who outwardly would identify as Muslim, but would continue to uh, adhere or practice uh, orthodoxy. It's, you know, Considering this the, the, on the topic of of conversion, to what extent did this group of uh, Cypriots, you know, exist in 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 society? Has it been overstated? Is this um, something that's not really well documented? Um, what can you tell us about those uh, groups of people?
1: This is a highly contested issue, again, as you can imagine, because this is uh, as you very. Uh, As you correctly pointed out, uh, this is a a group of people that had a dual identity, uh, both Christian and Muslim. Uh, Therefore, uh, they are a group claimed by the two biggest ethno-religious communities of the island. However, it is a highly misunderstood or partially understood Issue in Cypriot history. Uh, the first thing we need to understand is that, uh, especially in, in in Greek Cypriot historiography, these people are described as crypto Christians. The historical record shows that these people were not crypto Christians. That is, they were not consciously. There there no there is no proof that these people consciously concealed a Christian identity to avoid any kind of atrocity and were therefore publicly Muslim. These were people that had both identities. They were both Muslim and both uh, Christian. Even a a crypto-Christian, for example, would imply that Maintaining a Christian identity was a solely private matter. We have a lot of evidence showing that practicing uh, using a Christian name or going to the church was a public affair. Therefore, we're not talking about a a crypto-Christian group, but we are talking... About a group with a mixed and hybrid identity, as the term used, Linovambagi, Linen Cottons, very accurately and vividly describes. The other thing we need to remember is that it is not entirely cent- certain which kind of Christianity these populations. Practice. We have other, we have again several kinds of uh, documents and sources which point to the conclusion that at least some of them were Catholics or Maronites. And in the 19th century, uh, and especially after the inauguration of British rule, there was a policy of bringing these populations back to the Orthodox Church. And they were given even uh, even economic power was used to um, facilitate or even force the inclusion of these populations into the Greek Orthodox Church. So to say that Linovamvaki were Greeks or um, Christian Orthodox populations that went back to their original uh, confessional uh, denomination uh, is not supported by the historical record. It is a very contentious issue which is first and foremost traumatic for these populations. Suffice to say that when a Greek Cypriot and a Turkish Cypriot would discuss this issue, they would claim these communities as their own. But when Greek Cypriots would discuss this amongst them, or Turkish Cypriots would discuss this among them, they would look at this, they would frown upon these communities, because they didn't practice a pure a, 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 a pure version of religion. They were not quite part of us. They were fifth columnists that betrayed the uh, community as a whole by having this hybrid identity. Therefore, they've been marginalized and criticized and even ostracized internally as long as, or until rather, uh, they, these populations became a point of contention from the second half of the 19th century onwards. How
0: did the uh, Orthodox Church fare under the Ottomans? Um, uh, I mean, it's been, it's been, I think, pretty known that they were uh, co-opted into the, into the ruling um, structures but um, this, this wasn't necessarily an altruistic decision. Uh, why, how and why did the Orthodox Church uh, become reinstated after the, um, the arrival of the uh, Ottoman period?
1: To begin with, uh, I'm not sure if they were co-opted. Uh, and to be entirely honest, I'm not entirely sure about the altruistic nature of this, um, of this decision. Um what we do know is that the Greek Orthodox Church during the Venetian period was was being persecuted. And the inauguration of Ottoman rule essentially meant the reinstatement of the Greek Orthodox Church in Cyprus. And as a new structure was, was being established at the time, um, this was no simple issue. And we have a lot of tension taking place in the first century of Ottoman rule within the realm of the Greek Orthodox Church. A lot of the early archbishops of Cyprus, as the work of Marius Kajianastasis has uh, documented, actually had crypto-Catholic sympathies and tendencies, uh, going as far as sending oaths of allegiance to the Pope in Rome. So again, we have another example of hybridity, this time at the top echelons of society where elites were concerned trying to maintain both a Greek Orthodox and a Catholic um, confession. This, of course, is highly political. And uh, economic and social issues are involved in this. This is a time uh, in the 17th century uh, when Cyprus is being reinstated uh, in international trade. Uh, commerce uh, is picking up again after after the war. Uh, new, uh, as I discussed before, new trade routes and new ways of integrating Cyprus into um, global trade are being developed. Uh, the port of Larnaca is substituting Famagusta at the time. And all the consulates are being based in Larnaca. And there you have competing uh, loci of power, be they Venetian, be they French, be they Dutch or um, English. And this is the time of the counter-reformation. And we have, again, the reflection of... Larger processes in Cypriot in the Cypriot setting, uh, like the, the Counter Reformation, being reflected in the politics of the Greek Orthodox Church. So one would wonder why the Holy Synod of Cyprus uh, denounced uh, the um, denounced um, Calvinism, where there was uh, little presence. Uh, or activity of Calvinists on the island. Uh, Or we have one archbishop, uh, Ilarion Kigalas, who who, uh, became archbishop of Cyprus, having been excommunicated in Western Greece for um, uh, Catholic missionary activities in those areas. So, for in the first century or so of Ottoman rule, the consolidation of structures of power of the Ottoman church was far from simply regaining a Greek Orthodox character, but it was a site of contentions and competing political and religious agendas, which from the uh, latter decades of the 17th century onwards, consolidated to what we now know and can identify as the church, the Orthodox Church of Cyprus.
0: What what was its function um, besides administering to the spiritual needs of the Christian Orthodox communities in, in Cyprus? What was its function... With regards to the Ottoman rule,
1: sure. Um, well, the the church uh, is uh, an organized is a form of obviously organized religion and has means of of communication and exerting control uh, over the faithful. So it would seem as an obvious point of departure uh, for the execution of official uh, administrative tasks or duties. This is the first thing we need to remember when we we talk about what was the role of the church in the uh, administration of Cyprus. However, there is a big misunderstanding um, Perhaps not all of your listeners may be familiar with the term, but I'm sure a lot of them are. There is something called the millet system in the Ottoman Empire. Millet means, uh, it has various meanings, but in this context, it means religious community. uh, And in subsequent centuries, uh, actually, Uh, or rather in the 19th century, uh, it also acquires the meaning of ethno-religious community. Uh, And the theory behind this uh, millet system is that the head of the confessional group, in this instance the archbishop, is responsible for the obedience and fiscal affairs Of the flock. Uh, This is an interpretation that proliferated in the 19th century and the 20th century, and indeed even until today. The very idea of ethnarchia, ethnarchy, uh, which is very popular in 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 Cyprus, and uh, this is something that Archbishop Makarios used. quite frequently uh, starts from the idea of the millet. However, again, this is something that no, there is no historical evidence for the existence of a millet system that is a hierarchical institutionalized system whereby the Archbishop was always the head of the community. There is no such a system prior to the 19th century. What we had before the 19th century, were sometimes looser, other times quasi-institutionalized forms of communal organization along confessional lines, yes, but not exclusively for clerics. That is, communal leadership was an affair that required a balance between secular and clerical elites. And we may talk about intercommunal relations, for example, like the, community, the relations between. Christians and Muslims, but equally important are the intra-communal relations, that is the relations within the community. And communities are social bodies, and social bodies entail tensions, divisions. They have hierarchical structures. There are social differences between them. There are competing political or economic agendas. And this is exactly what happened in the case of communal organization in Cyprus. Sometimes we have clerics and laymen uh, collaborating and working uh, smoothly together. Other times we have intense power struggles between them. And when we have intense power struggles between them, we see either of them, either clerical or secular social groups. Uh, having no scruples to collaborate with the quote-unquote opposite members of the opposite religion, with Muslims, that is, in order to further their own political uh, or social or economic agenda. And this is something that should not surprise us. Uh, this is very much part of everyday coexistence in a multi-confessional society. Relations between different uh, ethno-religious groups are not simply characterized either by peaceful coexistence on the one hand or conflict and tension on the other. First of all, these interactions change over time and they take a form that is within this broad scope between peaceful coexistence and conflict. So we may have suspicion, we may have collaboration, we may have indifference, we may have uh, mutual uh, interests, uh, we may have interdependence, or we may have tension. And all these aspects of everyday life, which cannot be limited to black or white, where are necessary to understand how communities were organized both within them, but also how they interacted with the other community. Now, to go back to your uh, original question, you know, how was the uh, Greek Orthodox organized and what was the role of the church in this organization. In the later parts of the 17th century, we have the first documents that show a quasi-institutional engagement by uh, taking up the responsibility of collecting taxes and paying them to the tax collector on behalf of the community. But this is not done in an institutional fashion. This is done on an ad hoc case-to-case basis on uh, when this was sanctioned by the community itself. We have other times uh, when the um, clerical hierarchy had to collaborate or compete with other lay officials Such as the dragoman, such as the uh, accountant, such as the financier. These are official titles, uh, official positions in the communal organization. Uh, People who had power and used communal organization to further their own social or economic interests, which were not always identical with every other. Member of that elite group that controlled uh, communal organization. So the the overall history of communal organization in Cyprus is not limited to the history of the church.
0: I, I do want to talk about um, the, the dragoman in Cyprus. I know you wrote um, a couple of papers on him, which I find really really interesting. But before we we I bring him up, I wanted to ask one last question. With, with regards to uh, religion, in this period, was, could we confidently say religion was the sole marker of identity in this period for, for both communities? Or was there um, more? Was, was it more nuanced?
1: I would give you a very clear answer and say, no, it was not the sole marker of identity. It was a very important marker of identity. This is true. But it was the, not the only marker of identity. There were other markers of identity, such as social status, um, such um, as the position one uh, had or didn't have in the state. As I said before, uh, there were non-Muslims who were part of the state apparatus. Therefore, even though it was in an Islamic state, it was not one that excluded non-Muslims from being civil servants. Um, And there were many other ways of showing uh, of of, of how social status or social position was important. For example, in the case of the the guilds uh, and uh, artisans who had particular uh, skills and standing in society and economy, Um, whether one was a merchant or a moneylender or both, uh, indeed. So uh, to answer your question, identity, uh, as in any other period of time, and as it is today, it was a much more complex issue than uh, religion. We may... Think that because religion was a very important issue in the Ottoman Empire, and rightly so, because the Ottoman Empire was a theocratic state. But religion was not the sole determinant of the administration of daily affairs in the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, the Ottomans themselves frequently violated arguably violated the Quran or divine law in the name of pragmatic, everyday administration of fiscal or other affairs. So the Ottomans themselves knew very well that religion is not the only thing that matters and that we cannot administer an empire solely by uh, implementing religious dogma.
0: Right, because I'm, I'm reminded of, um, of uh, accommodations that were made for the Greeks on Cyprus, for example, mm-hmm. their, um, uh, their dis- the special dispensation that they were given to sell wine. Uh, otherwise, that would not have been allowed in a purely mm-hmm. I- Islamic empire.
1: This is is an excellent example. Uh, Again, to to show you what kind of misunderstandings and misconceptions arise from these literal readings uh, of legal or religious texts. In Crete, for example, uh, it has been argued that uh, wine production had declined uh, after the arrival of the Ottomans because the Ottomans being an Islamic empire, they discouraged the cultivation and production of wine as it is prohibited by Islam. First of all, we know uh, that at the very least some, uh, if not quite a few, uh, Ottomans uh, enjoyed consuming alcohol despite the religious prohibition. Uh, Secondly, if we look at the uh, economic Uh, and fiscal documentation, uh, we not only see the existence and the production of wine, but actually the proliferation of wine. And even in the case of Cyprus, if you map uh, vineyards in 1572, when we have the first Ottoman um, survey of the island, and 1832-33, when we have the, uh, the next available uh, survey, uh, and we identify the positions where uh, vineyards are being recorded, in the first case of 1572, vineyards are highly concentrated in the mountain range of Troodos in Cyprus. In 1832-33, it has proliferated uh, much beyond this mountain range, and it's being cultivated to about two-thirds of the island. So this shows that even though wine is a prohibited commodity in Islam, it had actually proliferated during the Ottoman period. And... What I want to emphasize again is that historians may read uh, legal or religious texts and sources uh, which describe an ideal society according to religious dogma, but we should not forget that that's exactly what it is, an ideal description. It is not a reflection of reality. It is what the authors of these sources may have thought that this society should look like. The actual daily goings on, goings on in that society are very different from what Dogma describes.